The year is 1197 and the long night has begun. When darkness falls, monsters walk the streets and alleys of the cities, congregating to plot and scheme. Fearing fire, the cross, and the lupines of the wild, the elder Cainites nonetheless seek to guide and control human civilization through centuries-old plots, while the younger vampires scrabble for power, influence, and prestige. Welcome to the world of Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 26 of the World of Dark Ages podcast, where we take a look at the Dark Ages books for the World of Darkness, both as historical books and as gaming books. My name is Jacob. Y me llamo Peter. Bienvenidos al podcast <laughs> de Dark Ages. Wow, uh, I didn't know you could speak that much Spanish. Uh, well, that's about the extent of the, the Spanish I know. I, I also know how to order a, a beer and a few drinks, but that that's about it. Right. Well, uh, I speak absolutely no Spanish, but I have been known to uh, to speak Scandinavian languages, and uh, I spent the last two days visiting the new Copenhagen Viking market, uh, and I also bought myself an interesting new knife. Uh, so, Peter, what have you been up to visiting Spain? Uh, no, unfortunately not. Uh, I'm, I'm just enjoying the last few days on my vacation, uh, going back to, to the old treadmill next week so yeah just hanging out in nature uh and and yeah just relaxing excellent well as people might have inferred from uh, peter's bilingual introduction uh the book we're looking at today is iberia by night written by michael a butler richard e dansky james malichewski and guy francis vela developed by philip r Boole. Um, starting with the cover, this has an interesting story for us because the font used for the title got one of our friends his first ban on the old Whitewood Wolf forums. I don't remember that actually, but please, <laughs> tell me, please remind me and tell me more. Uh, um, it was Yannick, um, who is a linguist. Um, he's specialized in um, Indo-European languages. And he complained because the way that they write Iberia is using a uh, Sanskrit font, uh, the way you uh, you write Sanskrit. Yeah. And, and uh, he was annoyed because that has absolutely no connection to any um, language used in, in Iberia or something like that. Uh, so he was rather uh, annoyed because, you know, that was that was his speciality and he complained enough that he actually caught his his first ban on the old forums, which was uh, it, it was an interesting place, uh, to say the least. Yeah. And, and I can imagine that that uh, Yannick being the kind of vocal person his would be uh, vocal about <laughs> this as well and, and thusly being banned. But but yeah, I, I didn't think about it, but I, I don't think. Yeah, now that you mention it, I probably do remember it. Yeah, and I mean, I I had absolutely no idea, but but you know when um, when it's being explained, then yeah, uh, I can definitely see that that line on top that looks like when you see stuff written in in Sanskrit. Yeah. Uh, Setting aside the font, the picture itself is pretty cool. I assume it's supposed to be a charge of Christian knights during the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa, which is a key event in this book, and it looks good. However, uh, the plate armor worn by the most visible knight is far, far too anachronistic. That's like 100 years in the future, and looks like his sword is a longsword. Uh, but putting that aside, I like the dynamic look of it, uh, of, of this cover picture. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, the fact that he's uh, holding his sword left-handed is also a bit weird. 
Uh, and if you look at the, the, the men at arms behind him, you can see a few people who wears what almost looks like English Civil War helmets from the yeah. 17th century. Uh, but except for that, yeah, it's the the both the the um, uh, Muslim warriors and the uh, the Christian knights have more or less historical uh, armor, and and you don't have the kind of fantasy uh, uh, Warhammer esque uh, shoulder pads and stuff like that. So it it actually looks really good, and and the horses are really well drawn as well as some of the <laughs> they they haven't always been. If if you remember a few of that or um, pictures that we talked about in the previous <laughs> yeah. episodes. Yeah, exactly. So this this works really well. As for the interior art, there are <coughs> a few pieces that are somewhat simple and fuzzy kind of line drawings where some are good or some are some are a bit meh. But other than that, I really like the art in in this book. A favorite piece of mine is the assassination picture on page eighty seven, which is really really dynamic and. Again, you know, I, I just like the composition of it. There's um, just, you know, something about it that appeals to me. I can't really explain it, but there are... A f- yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I agree with... It's it's very di- dynamic and, and it's quite stereotypical with, with the, what I assume is an Asamite in, in veils uh, and, and a hood stabbing a Christian vampire in the chest. Uh, I'm a bit curious about what the Christian vampire's armor is supposed to be because he, he has some kind of, I don't know if it's studded or, or some, some kind of, of, he's wearing a chain mail and over that some, some kind of overcoat with, with like discs or something attached. With the way that like... I, uh, I interpreted that is uh, that he's put coins on, on his overcoat just to, uh, to show how rich he is. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps, but it. I mean, yeah, it, that's it, better it than good. it being studded leather. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. Uh, but but yeah, that's so, that's the only only kind of bribe I have with that particular picture. Yeah, uh, there are a few uh, pieces that are made to look like woodcuts or um, or engravings of some kind, and I think mm-hmm. that's really cool. They've done that in in previous Dark Ages books, and and it just ties in very well with the period. Uh, generally, weapons and armor are good here, except there's a lot of plate armor going around. Mm. Uh, the battle scene on page 23, uh, where he has some really uh, period-appropriate helmets and a very nice variety of Muslim shields, that has a lot of plate on the Christian side. But, I mean, all in all, I'm, I'm not going to complain too much about it. One final comment is the knight on page 91. Uh, he's in the section on Iberian knightly order, but he's wearing a tabard with the heraldry of the kingdom of Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, so that that was that was a bit weird since it's speaking uh, about Iberian knightly orders. But what did you think of the art, Peter? Uh, enough hats? <laughs> well, there are quite a few helmets and and some um, headscarves and stuff like that. Uh, but but speaking of uh, of the knight on on page ninety one. Um, he he has a very eighties or nineties kind of X Men hairstyle though, with, with a kind of <laughs> flat top, almost a bit of a mullet going on in the back, and and then rather long sideburns. But but except for that, there is um, I I really do like the the artwork. Um, and and speaking of swords and armor, uh, not only do they have uh, very nice um, chainmail aventails attached to a lot of the the helmets that we see, yeah. but the um, uh, a lot of the swords you see 
have a very distinct Iberian kind of of, of cross guard and pommel. Um, I think that style of uh, the the kind of uh, bent. I don't know really how to describe yeah, upwards it. Upwards curving. Yeah, the, the upwards curving uh, quillons on uh, on the guard. It might be from a later period, but it's it's still a very distinct Iberian or if you'd like Spanish kind of style of sword. And you yeah, can see it, it. it's maybe like fifty years out of date, but not too much. Uh, yeah. that that you know, it's not something that you can complain too much about. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I do hope that it's on purpose because then it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but but over overall, uh, a lot of the artwork is is very evocative and and fits the style. I especially like the fact that the the portraits for uh, for the canines in the uh, in that section of the book, um, not only do they fit the characters, but they're also quite. Um, it's not kind of just the boring school photo kind of artwork that we've seen for a lot of other characters, but but you can actually see kind of of feelings and and emotions and uh, uh, kind of kind of what the uh, what character traits what what the character is supposed to be. Is it a sneaky bastard or a uh, noble warrior or, or whatever um, there is two pictures though that that were kind of um, out of place I would say and the first one is on page uh, 31 if I'm not no sorry uh, let me check no sorry 32 uh, which have I'm assuming it's supposed to be a la sombra since his 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 shadowy yeah. cloak is is kind of billowing behind him with, with kind of shadowy tentacles, but he's he also has. It's basically a, a sneaky vampire sneaking around in the middle of the night, being sneaky, and he's also bored, bold, and have elf ears, uh, and the way he holds his hands, kind of in front of him, almost like claws, just makes him look like a parody of of. Uh, Count Orlok from um, yeah uh, from Nosferatu, yeah, um, and and that's just I don't know it's it just feels a bit out of place and and like come on we we can do better you we've seen a lot of it um, mm. there's there's also a a soldier on page forty six that is wearing what I assume to yeah, be some that sort one. of slashed uh, doublet or jacket and a very modern plate so he's he's a few hundred years too early um but also on page 49 you have uh, i don't know if it's supposed to be one of the main characters or just just a, an ominous priest in general but he's he looks more like something from from modern nights and the the style of cross behind him um, I'm assuming that he's supposed to be in a church because you have a large window, stained glass window in the yeah. background as well. But but the style of cross just looks like something from a goth club in the 80s. It, it looks kind of a, a postmodern interpretation of a crucifix. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's, almost. that's a very and good way of putting it. Yeah. And you're very right. Like his vestments invoke a more modern, uh, more modern look. You, you so. kind of expect him to pull out a, a shotgun from underneath underneath his cassock, um, <laughs> but but yeah, it's it, it's very like let's go kill some vampires in the name of yeah. the Lord kind of <laughs> to it. Uh, but but overall, I, I really like the the artwork um, and uh, yeah, very, quite quite period accurate uh, for most of it. Um, there there are a few things that might be from later time period but uh, yeah overall uh, i it's it's very suitable for for this book
Yeah, so we start with <clears throat> an intro story. And I've mentioned before how intro stories just don't do it for me most of the time. And that's the same here. Uh, it, it felt pretty middle of the road to me. I don't know if, if you have like any specific comments about it. No, not really. It's it's about a... a, a, a what is it? Is it supposed to be a, a Jewish La Sombra and a yeah. Muslim La Sombra who, who basically goes on... Uh, on a dungeon crawl and then one of them uh, I won't spoil too much but one of them betrays the other and it's all kind of I don't know if it's supposed to be kind of like like uh, um, a surprise or or kind of like a, a big reveal that oh no Alessandra betrays another vampire and it's kind of like yeah isn't that that what vampires do so so I agree it's it's very much middle of the road it doesn't really do much um, yeah. Uh, now this book moves the Dark Ages timeline up a bit further. Bitter Crusade ended in 1204, and this book is set in uh, 1212, after the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa, uh, which is generally regarded as the turning point in the Christian-Muslim war. And it makes a lot of sense to set it there, because that's really where things start to change. So it's it's a time where you can tell some really interesting stories because the Christians suddenly get this idea that, okay, we can win this. We can drive the Muslims from the Iberian Peninsula. And the Muslims are starting to think, okay, maybe we can't actually hold on to what we've got. So it offers up a lot of um, of options. Um, so so I, I like that they've moved the timeline up a bit. Yeah, I I agree. Um, of course, the, the the setting of the Reconquista is uh, the the name Reconquista itself is um, a bit problematic and misleading because it kind of um, it, it kind of assumes that that you it means reconquering or or reconquer, um, and and it kind of implies or assumes that that the Christians had the right to. Uh, retake the land from the Muslims, but of course, in reality, the politics behind it is is a lot more complicated. Um, yeah, exactly. Because uh, originally, uh, it it wasn't a Christian land; it was uh, occupied by a number of other religions and stuff like that. And and when when things like religion and politics get involved, it gets it gets problematic. I did a bit of research, um, and I found that uh, the idea of the Reconquista and, and the name of it has, as these things tend to be, uh, been adopted by far-right uh, nationalist mm. elements, which is always problematic. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to be using the term uh, a couple of times throughout this because the book talks a lot about it, but just yeah. so that our listeners are aware that um, it, it is a, a term that has problematic connotations. Yeah, and and I'm speaking mostly from from a historical uh, perspective, because uh, again, it's it's kind of like the the Thirty Years' War, uh, which is supposed to be a war between Protestants and Catholics. But you have Sweden, who was Protestant, fighting at times on the same side as Catholic France. Uh, yeah. and, and and in the same, it's it's kind of the same here in um, in Iberia, in that you have. Uh, one of the great heroes of the uh, of the Reconquista, um, Rodrigo uh, El Cid. Uh, what is it? The, the, uh, I can't remember his last name. We're gonna get to it. But but anyway, he at times fought as a mercenary for for Muslim rulers. So it's 
it's it's still not clear cut and it's it's very not black and white it's very much gray uh, yeah and, but again that's what's make it interesting as you said uh, it's a really interesting time period to uh, to set uh, a chronicle or, or a meta game um, so so it that's uh, for me that's ju- it just makes it more fun yeah, uh, and they do uh, later in in the last chapter, and we'll get into that. They they do talk a bit about the problems that this conflict can present and stuff yeah. like that. But we'll get into that. So the introduction gives us the classic how to use this book, but mm. adds a bit more, which is nice considering the complexities of the setting. Now, one of our our listeners, uh, a guy named Oriol Espinosa, I hope I'm pronouncing that slightly uh, correct. Uh, He's from Spain. He's specifically from Catalonia. And he sent us uh, a message with some comments on this book. Uh, So we're going to pepper in his comments as we go along. Uh, And one of them was actually about the use of the word uh, Mm. reconquista uh, and and that being problematic. Um, So so he, he... was the one who clued me into uh, to the problems uh, about this. Um, now, in addition to a very welcome ma- map, two things that I think the intro does very well is giving us a quick explanation on the various peoples in Iberia, showing how complex the situation is. Not only do you have, like, Christians and Muslims, you have Basques, you have Arab-speaking Christians, uh, so you have a, a, a mix and you have to be aware of of the fact that there's not just, you know, Christians and Muslims, but the Muslims themselves were divided into Arabs and Berbers. Um, so that that's nice that they put that in there so you can be aware of that. Um, and they also take a look at the different languages that's spoken on the Iberian Peninsula at this time. And our Catalan listener, uh, he says that they made a, a mistake with the Catalan language by saying that it's similar to Castilian and French, when in reality at this point it's closely related to Occitan, which is the language that's spoken in southern France just across the border from uh, Catalonia, which, you know, makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because uh, Occitan isn't French, it's it's Occitan, yeah. it's it's a different yeah. language. And, and, um, and the area of Occitania con, uh, consisted of, of more than just the area in, in modern France, which is, I think it's still called Occitania or something like that, but... Possibly, but, I'm not sure. Uh, but it, it brings up a very interesting point, uh, which which I think can never be repeated too, uh, too often, and, and it's that geography of medieval Europe is completely different oh, than, yeah. than modern-day Europe. Uh, so Occitania, for example, when it was at the biggest, or the area that w- could be considered Occitania, it included not only, like you mentioned, southern France, but also parts of, of what is now northern Spain, and also some small part of what is now Italy. Mm. Uh, so, so you kind of have to take everything into consideration. Uh, and um, uh, Oriol also mentioned the fact that the the language called Spanish isn't really a, a around. It's supposed to be Castilian Spanish, uh, because again. The, the idea of Spain comes much later, and you you had this different uh, language group. So you had the Occitane that's in some places turned into uh, Catalonian, and then you had Castilian, uh, which is kind of the the main Spanish, so to speak. And in, then you also had the the Basques having their own language, which um, Euskera, which is kind of uh, 
it's a bit of a mystery because it, it's not really related to to anything else. Uh, and yeah, it's it's a very interesting thing because it's a, it's a language that survives to this day, and uh, linguists have been unable to link it to any other language yeah. that we know of. That's yeah. uh, that's really fascinating. Yeah, and and there there are some interesting theories of what it could be related to, uh, and and some theories connected to to. Uh, Georgia in not not a, not a state in the US but a country <laughs> in Eastern Europe uh, and and to all all sorts of different places and and of course like it could be but we don't really know and and it's it really is a mystery because it's it's so um, it's so disconnected from from everything else but ju- just to go on a really uh, far tangent uh, in with with the language uh, and and uh, when I was doing the research on the language, I found out that there are um, since uh, since the the Basque area or the Basques they live near the Atlantic coast. They uh, did a lot of, of fishing and, and seafaring and stuff like that. And especially later on, uh, they had uh, connections to the to the Algonquin people mm. uh, in in Northern America. So there is oh. there is an an Algonquin Basque pidgin language. Uh, which and, wow. and this is this is from way I think the earliest um, uh, I think the earliest mention of it is or, or when it was at its height is in the, the uh, 16th and 1700s. So it's it's way after uh, when uh, when this game is set. But I still find it's kind of interesting that that they would travel uh, not only that far to basically do fishing, but they also did it. Um, they, they also did it often enough to de- develop a pidgin language with the natives of that area. Yeah, uh, and and there's also one document um, it, or or a version of of a Basque pidgin language uh, that is called uh, Basque Icelandic pidgin. Oh, uh, and and the reason why it's called Icelandic is because they, there's uh, there are documents from um, from the northwestern western peninsula of of Iceland. Uh, where it's basically a dictionary, so you have uh, you you have the the uh, Basque kind of pigeon phrase. You have, I think it's German mostly that it's uh, the, that the pigeon is is a combination of Basque and German and and uh, some other languages, uh, but then a translation into Icelandic. Uh, and the reason for that is because there were a lot of Basque um, again sailors and and whale fishers who went to to that kind of area to. Uh, to fish for whales and then it would make sense to like if they needed to stop for for provisions or everything or anything then iceland would be the closest place to do it uh, and iceland in and of itself even though it's really far away um isn't really that um isolated from from no the they rest had a of lot Europe. of they had a lot of contact with the rest of Europe, uh, yeah. considering how far they were from. Yeah, it. and and even up up in the 17 and, and early 1800s, you have the Berber pirates of the Barbary coast going yeah. to Iceland to basically raid for slaves. Uh, so so again, just because you have on a map quite a distance doesn't mean that you're disconnected from the rest of the world. Uh, but that's that's that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it's interesting with these languages because it's really the first time they've shown, at least in my uh, recollection, they've shown just how many languages there are in an area where 
today we would consider it one language and it's the same thing all over like in France uh, at this time they don't speak French you have Occitanus we've mentioned mm. you have uh, sort of a central French language you have the Norman language in Germany you have uh, Hochdeutsch Niederdeutsch Plattdeutsch whatever yeah. uh, and and I think we've talked about this before and languages only really start coming together as a unified rec- recognizable national language once you get mass communication uh verbal mass communication in the form of radio and then later television uh that's when you start uh seeing uh, the local dialects s- s- slowly melting away and becoming more homogenous and at this point you know you you can definitely hear if somebody is from a different um kingdom in uh, in Spain but you'd actually even be able to hear if somebody was from uh, like two towns over just yeah. because of, of the way their dialect is. Yeah. Um, one last thing about languages is um, Oriol mentions something which I, I didn't know and which I think is really cool. And that is that the Occitan language was sort of uh, of a fashionable language in Christian Iberia used among poets and nobles more than Latin. So you would have poets composing in in Okitan rather than Latin or their their local language, um, this is this is a really cool thing and and something that I think could very much be used in games, especially if you have games that are set uh, in the northeastern parts of uh, of the Iberian Peninsula. Um, so other 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 than you know a couple of missed uh, opportunities here, I think the intro does do a really good job of presenting the book and the themes in the book. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So chapter one presents the, uh, the history of the Iberian Peninsula. And uh, obviously it has to condense quite a lot since it's a long, long history. I mean, even when the Phoenicians began establishing their rule, there were people settled there with a culture going. So it has a huge span uh, to cover. Uh, and, and so they have to focus on what's uh, most important for the way that they're presenting the book and that's uh, Rome and the Roman Carthaginian conflict yeah. and then the Muslim invasion and what happens beyond that uh, and these are the period uh, these are the the historic periods that established the Iberia of 1212 among mortals and Canaanites so some of the history is going to be very very superficial but obviously you know, you can always do your own research and you don't want the book ending up like 700 pages because they they go overboard on the history. Yeah, um, it's it's so actually one of the one of the gripes I kind of have with this book. And, and it's um, I, I'm not complaining that they go into detail, but there is a bit of repetition because first you have the part that they call um basically the, the the history and then they go into the geography of the different areas uh, or provinces in in um, iberia uh, and then they repeat not all of it but but quite a few things that they yeah. repeat which i don't know it's the, the the book is already 140 pages long and it could i don't know it it feels kind of redundant just repeating stuff um so so remove it or replace it with something else yeah you are right that when when they get into the sort of more geographical stuff there there is there is uh, a bit of of repetition that that could have been uh, been moved uh but when it comes to um 
to the vampiric part of it, I think they're quite good at weaving in the the canine history uh, with with mortal history. Though I don't know if I agree with their choice of letting Iberia be pretty much completely La Sombra dominated, with the other clans playing second fiddle at best, and the peninsula sort of being a big battleground between the Christian and Muslim La Sombra branches. I mean, given that both the Toreador and Brugia clans have Spanish names, I'd like yeah. to have seen them feature more prominently. They do mention the Brugia quite a bit, but uh, then we get to the NPC chapter, and, and I'll I'll get to my complaint there. So I think they overdid it with the La Sombra. Yeah, I I agree that it feels kind of weird. It's it's kind of the same that that all of the Middle Eastern um, vampires have to be Asamite, or all of the Egyptian vampires have to be followers or followers of Set. Uh, and, and especially since since you mentioned or, or Oriol mentioned the uh, the kind of Occitan being a language of culture, and you actually do have uh, an an influence of Toreador in in the area um, in and around Barcelona and Catalonia, uh, which it, it it doesn't really make sense to have them so marginalized and and uh, like. Um, uh, Carthage, the, the the ancient country, yeah. uh, had a lot of of Brugia and and Spain was became the new or Iberia became the new Carthage. So it would make sense that it, there would also be a lot of uh, a lot of Brugia. Uh, they do mention in the passing that perhaps one of the first vampires in the area uh, were Gangrel, uh, which could also make sense, but but. But what I, I don't mind the La Sombra being kind of the uh, the most influential clan, but as you say, it feels a bit weird that they are dominating it so completely, and that there's basically no room for any other clans at all. Yeah, um, it seems like the other clans, when they're described, they're quite often described in their relationship yeah. to the La Sombra. And and it it makes it difficult to uh, to really see them on their own, and especially with with the Toreador and, and Brucia clans, I think that they should have something on their own. Uh, one thing that I do like is is how they describe that the La Sombra managed to pretty much push out the the Ventru and establish mm-hmm. Iberia as being this is uh, La Sombra territory. The Ventru are not going to get a foothold here. That I think is uh, is fine, and and uh, the way they they describe it is is also uh, f- uh, well enough. But I I really would have liked to have the Brucia, especially, uh, but also the Toreador, play a bigger part uh, in how how they uh, they describe the Canaanites of Iberia. Yeah, I I agree, and and considering the. Uh, kind of terrain of the Iberian Peninsula, with you have a lot of mountain ranges and, and yeah. highlands. Uh, fun side fact: besides uh, the capital of, of Switzerland, Madrid is uh, the uh, the capital in Europe that lies on the highest altitude. Oh, uh, okay. So yeah, um, I remember some things from from my Spanish <laughs> lessons. Apparently, uh, but but yeah, I, I agree there. There is so much room for for other clans to to hang around. Like you can have Malkavians hang around in old uh, Roman uh, Roman ruins. You could have uh, Gangrels running around in the mountains. You can have, uh, like you said, Toreador and Ambrugia 
and and especially uh, I, I think I'm gonna touch the, more upon this on uh, during the uh, how to run a game chapter of of the book but but like there's if if you're going to set a long-running chronicle like from ancient times to modern times in uh, on the Iberian Peninsula there are so many opportunities for like a Bruja, a long-running Bruja yeah. Sombra conflict uh, because there's so many things uh, and and heck even, <coughs> even and I'm gonna touch about this more later but but I in in one of the places I would say that uh, you could even have some some changeling uh, and or gangrel having a big part of it uh, but I'm, I'm gonna come back to that because there's something very specific I have in mind on that one yeah so uh, also in this this chapter they add a couple of nice sidebars one is about El Cid who we mentioned before mm. like one of the big big historical characters uh, in Iberia and he has become this mythical figure that is venerated not just among mortals but among canines as well yeah. and I like this idea of, of a mortal who was uh, actually, according to the history here, he was offered the embrace, but he turned it down. Yeah. And now he's become someone that vampires will venerate. And then there's a sidebar about Jewish Kabbalah, which is like just in the beginning of being mm. codified in Iberia yeah. at this time. Mm. So they say, yeah, Kabbalah, as we know, it doesn't exist yet, but it, they're starting to to put the first touches together. So that is also an interesting uh, yeah, story. Yeah, they're, they're in the alpha stage and kind of figuring things through. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, El Cid Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar was his name that I couldn't remember. But <laughs> if, if nothing else, uh, there is a, I wouldn't say great movie, but an entertaining movie with uh, Sofia Loran and Charlton Heston in the lead. Uh, which is it's actually uh, it's it, it, like I said it's it's very entertaining and and one of the uh, one of the myths or legends about El Cid was that um, he he died uh, he he was wounded in battle uh, and and then uh, his his army had to do like the final charge to break the the, the Muslim opponents but he had died before that so he was actually uh, nailed to his saddle. Uh, to kind of be able to to lead the charge anyways and that apparently scared off the um, scared off the the, the Muslim uh, enemies which I, I think it's again the kind of the, the practicalities of religion and politics in that yeah we, we need our leader and our hero so let's basically desecrate his corpse to use him as, as a rallying point. Uh, if it works, it works. Yeah, exactly, and and that's that's kind of the running theme with religion and politics throughout history. <laughs> yeah. So overall, you know, I think they did a good job presenting the history that's relevant for the time period. You can always do more research yourself, obviously, but I think it's a good start. And in many cases, of all you, uh, it's all you need if you don't want to focus too much on prior history in your chronicle. This is yeah. this is the kind of thing you can hand to your character to your players and say, if you read this, then then you will usually have the kind of knowledge that your character would have. Yeah. So uh, so generally, you know, well done, but but you can always do more research yourself. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's uh, what, what, yeah, it's, you, you, you don't really need, I, I wouldn't even uh, demand my players to, to like read all of it, but basically if, if they ask something or if they need it for their characters, it's like, yeah, look on page, whatever, uh, and, and just hand it to them. Uh, of yeah. course, nowadays you could use Wikipedia articles instead, but but yeah, it's, it works out. 
Yeah, so chapter 2 details the lands under Christian control, which is divided into a number of, of kingdoms and uh, a few other types of states. Um, it's actually interesting, you know, if you don't uh, know that much about how it works. I think a lot of people assume that, well, everything in the Middle Ages was uh, either uh, an empire or a kingdom, and then below that were duchies and then counties and so yeah. on. But sometimes counties and even baronies were pretty much independent. Um, so... It's not that you can say, well, everything was in a kingdom. Uh, we start with, uh, they, they go through them alphabetically. So we start with Aragon and Catalonia, which are in an interesting situation as being united under the crown of Aragon, but they're separate entities otherwise due yeah. to political reasons. Uh, and uh, I, I, I always think that this is interesting because this shows that, yeah, it's not just, you know, we have a kingdom that's ruled by a king. He rules this area. That's it. Uh, you you can see sort of various political uh, constellations. Uh, now, um, our listener, uh, he points out that they made a mistake with the city of Lerida, which apparently should more probably be called Ledas. That's the Catalan name for it. Yeah. Uh, and in this book, it's presented as Aragonese, but it was actually part of Catalan. And he also mentions that Barcelona was not founded by the Carthaginians, as the books say, but by uh, Iberians before the coming uh, of the Carthaginians. Yeah, Barcelona um, so, has, uh, or the area that is now Barcelona has uh, a very long history. The um, there the, uh, remains from around 5000 BC uh, of, of early settlements, and it's it's one of those places that, uh, since since it's a great place to build a settlement, everyone has done it. So so you have like yeah. the, the first Iberians, and then you have someone else, and then the Romans come and conquer it. Um, the the <coughs> idea that it was the Carthaginians who who built the city it's it's one of the two uh, kind of of legends or myths, and it's one that uh, let's see so that I don't get his name wrong, uh, Hamilcar. Uh, yeah. was was one of the supposed founders uh, and uh, that they named the city after his his family name which would be Barkan if I'm not uh, yeah Barker Hamilcar yeah. Barker yeah uh, and that's the the other myth which I think is is kind of a bit more interesting and and fun is that uh, when Hercules was was doing his twelve great deeds he. Uh, he sailed with Jason and the Orgonauts for a bit, uh, and one of their ships uh, in that fleet uh, went missing. Uh, and Hercules was like, "Don't worry, I'll find them." And he he uh, searched for them a bit, and he found them in what was now Barcelona. But uh, they they had settled there uh, because they were <laughs> safe. They had got lost in a storm, but it's like, hey, it's a nice place to settle down. Uh, and so. Um, the the place was named since it was the ninth ship it was named after that which according to legend would be Barcanona which then turned into Barcelona uh, mm. it it sounds a bit like bullshit uh, and and like uh, just making uh, making th things up as you go along and and justifying things after the fact but it's it's still kind of I I like the idea of of a place just being founded by by someone who like Okay, our ship's stranded. We're safe. Do we want to join our friends? Nah, let's just stay here. It's, it seems like a nice place. Uh, yeah. So. Oh, and and you know, a lot of cities have uh, songs written about them, but Barcelona has one of the best, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, with and, um, yes, you, um, Freddie Mercury, you're thinking yeah, of? Yeah, and, and now I can't remember what her name is, but Freddie Mercury singing with this opera singer. Yeah. That is just, that is an awesome song. Yeah. Um, so from here on, we go on to Castile, and I am really, really happy that they resisted the urge when they uh, wrote about Toledo to just go all in on, ooh, swords and best swords yeah. from here, because uh, if anyone's uh, seen the really really cool movie Highlander you know they talk about swords from from Toledo and this this sort of infiltrated pop culture mm -hmm. and there's a tendency whenever Toledo is being talked about oh you have to talk about the swords and everything and they didn't do it here so that was something that I was quite happy about um, yeah. uh, Montserrat Caballera is the name by the way I, that's uh, her name yeah, yeah. exactly uh, so to all our listeners if you haven't heard uh, Freddie Mercury and, and Montserrat uh, singing Barcelona, then then do it once you've finished with this yeah. podcast because it is an amazing song. Yeah, I'm, um, uh, yeah I, I have more about uh, about Barcelona if you want to do that now. Oh, again. yeah, sure. No, let's uh, let's uh, hear what more you got. Rather, Barcelona and, and Catalonia is, is interesting just for, the, uh, for many reasons, but one of them is what you mentioned is that you have this different... Um, the, this different kind of you have uh, counties and baronies and duchies and and kingdoms and and they all kind of vie for control uh, and and Catalonia has has always had a very strong uh, kind of independence movement. Oh yes, uh, and a, in in some ways a lot stronger than uh, than other areas of of Spain. Uh, and I I won't go into too much or I, I'll try to avoid modern politics, but but I think it's. Uh, it, it's a very good place to, uh, to to set a story because you have this kind of of, of conflict between uh, different interests in, um, in in Barcelona. So, for example, you you could have the very Christian Las Sombras. You could have ancient Brujas who who goes around there, um, and uh, and and there again there are lots of many different ways you could. You could put it up uh, or, or kind of, of plant it, uh, and so I was I was really glad actually then when we we got a message from from Oriol, uh, and he he kind of mentioned it as well, and and he also mentioned that yeah let's let's avoid the uh, the more the, the modern uh, kind of independence movie movement, uh, but but yeah uh, Catalonia is uh, one of my my favorite places to read about in Spain. Um, and and again, I'll probably come back to it a bit more. But but since you have this kind of um, not really a disconnect from the rest of Spain, but it is a different language and it is a different culture, and yeah. and it's it, it has a bit of a conflict with with Aragon and Castile, and and uh, yeah, it it opens up for so many opportunities for for a lot of fun role playing. I think. Yeah, especially if you do a Through the Ages Chronicle. I mean, I recently finished reading uh, George Orwell's uh, Homage to Catalonia, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, obviously focuses on that area during the Spanish Civil War, mm -hmm. which was... It was a really interesting place during uh, during that time. I can see a lot of Brugia uh, running around there yeah. thinking that this is this is our time. Yeah, that's that's what was actually one of the things that I was thinking of. If if you could have like um, starting whenever basically, but you you can have a long running chronicle and kind of do a generational 
like each chapter uh, in the chronicle um, is uh, a, a different generation of vampires. So is it is it Adventure Chronicles who basically does that? Is that you play your child in? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so you could you could easily have the same um, starting off with with kind of a clash between um, Bruge and La Sombra back in ancient times, and and then you could have uh, you, you could have a conflict between the uh, between Muslim and and uh, Christian vampires, uh, of course. Uh, the La Sombra, uh, they, they influence not uh, the, the Catholic Church a lot, so you could have the kind of um, the, the kind of, of um, I don't know if it's anti-Christian is the right word, but but anti-Catholic uh, or anti-Church Bruja who's, mm. who's revolting, and you can have influences from the peasant rebellions and and the kind of. Uh, pre-reformation uh, heresies that were quite popular in Europe in in the uh, 13th and 14th and 15th centuries, uh, and then of course going up to to the Spanish Civil War, uh, where you again can have the La Sombra connected to the Church, uh, who very much supported the, the uh, Falangists and the Francoists on one side against the anarchist and socialist and communist Bruja on the other side. Um, which which I think just just would make a really cool campaign, especially since you can have the same Catholic La Sombra who was around in 1212 being around in 1936 during the Civil War. Um, and and here is also where I, if, if I would ever throw in changelings, it would be because of the film Pan's Labyrinth uh, by oh, the end yes. of the story, which takes place... It actually takes place in 1944, which is a- after the Spanish Civil War officially ended, but uh, there were still persecutions and, and rebels mm. up in the mountains. Uh, and so you could set it in Barcelona, since Barcelona was uh, was one of the strongest uh, anti-fascist uh, strongholds, basically. You had uh, Buenaventura Durruti, who, who fought and... and uh, fought in Barcelona against the fascists, uh, freed it and then marched uh, on, on Madrid. Uh, so yeah. uh, so you, you could have it and like if there's one movie that is very much Changeling or Fae, then it's Pan's Labyrinth uh, with, yeah. <laughs> with the faun and, and all of the freaky stuff. Or if you don't want to do a crossover, uh, have the faun be a very ancient gangrel who has just been transformed by animalistic features so that it's it just looks like this kind of ant-like fawn uh, and have him have a court uh, with some Malkavians who use dementations to kind of summon this hallucinations of, of fairies and, and other stuff uh, and, and just turn, turn Pan's Labyrinth into uh, or use it as an inspiration for for a vampire chronicle. Uh, yeah, I think you know that 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 movie manages to combine the fantastic elements with brutal reality really well. Yeah, it's it's one of the best and most horrifying and horrible movies I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, but again, it 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 feels very World of Darkness, and you could really tie it into um, and. I'd love to see it. it. It could work as a one-shot as well, or, or just a, a standalone story. But I think it would be so interesting to tie it together with with what we said about since since Iberia has a, such an ancient culture, it 
it's it's kind of a miss not using it to kind of tie it together uh, with old scores being settled between uh, Catholic La Sombra uh, supporting the fascists uh, and the Catholic Church during the Civil War and ancient Bruja who has now kind of uh, embraced the whole anarchist um, republican movement of of, uh, yeah. uh, of the Spanish Civil War as well. Yeah. Uh, so let's do like uh, George Orwell and finally get out of Catalonia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about um, that. <laughs> no, that's cool. I mean, yeah. it is it is one of the the more uh, interesting areas, and it's one of the because of its location and everything. It is one of the areas that that has uh, the most to offer, uh, really. Mm. But yeah, I mean, we also have Leon, uh, which has a very nice description of the, of the various routes to Santiago de Compostela, mm. which yeah. is obviously the third most important pilgrimage site in Christian Christendom. Though, um, while, while I really like that and I like how they, they talk about it, I feel like they could have, have focused a bit more on the faith that this might generate. Like, how much true faith is there actually in yeah. the various pilgrim routes? Yeah, what, would, what would it take for a vampire mm. to travel these routes with a bunch of devote, um, devoted people who... I mean, even today, if if you say the Camino, then people yeah. will know what you're talking about, yeah. and and even people who are not uh, Catholic, like my mom, has has uh, she's wanted to walk the Camino for a long time. Uh, I mean, all that mortal investment ought to create some kind of faith. So I think it could have been fun for them to talk about how there is a level of faith inherent in these pilgrim routes yeah. that makes it difficult for a vampire to walk them. But if they do it, they get so much more out of it. Uh, so that's, you know, maybe just a bit of a, a missed opportunity yeah, there. Yeah, and, and especially since we mentioned that there are some superfluous parts of previous chapters. If So if they would have removed them, they could have had place for this. I'm, I'm thinking because you have the... Uh, it, what's it? Is It's the Lions of Rodrigo who are the... Yeah. Um, the vampire knights who who are kind of fanatics and and uh, defend pilgrims on the road uh, yeah. to this place and I, I think it would be really cool if it's if if it kind of confine the 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 area affected by holy faith um, or true faith to to just the actual paths and roads that the pilgrims walk so you have mm. these you have these vampire knights who can never approach. They, or they can approach the road, but they can never walk it themselves because that's yeah. at least in places it's too much uh, true faith. But you still have them as kind of watchers in the night and in the shadows, riding alongside the road, uh, defending the pilgrims on it uh, against uh, outside attacks. Uh, and of course, you could have scenes like someone trying to cross the threshold or, or the the um, and uh, the edge of the road. Uh, to attack a mortal and they can't and this very pious pilgrim is kind of safe on the road um, mm. kind of scenes like that yeah uh, we end with uh, Navarre and Portugal um, they have mentioned before and they touched a little bit on it here how Portugal is sort of a, a Brucha territory and the Brucha are trying to uh, enact one of their grand uh, democratic experiments mm. in Portugal uh, and I think they could have fleshed that out a bit more. Obviously, always you'll always be strapped for um, uh, for space. But I think that that a deeper look at Portugal 
would be interesting, especially because Portugal is a rather interesting country and it becomes even more interesting as you move up in time. It is uh, the country in Europe that has had uh, its borders the longest. They they yeah. settled their borders in, I think it's 1400 and something, and then they just don't change ever yeah. since then. Yeah. And no other country in Europe can, can say the same. Yeah. So that's kind of, uh, kind of an interesting thing. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's a somewhat superficial presentation, but it kind of has to be because it covers a lot of territory, even just covering the Christian lands. Uh, you do get a lot of cool story seeds, and I think they succeed in presenting each kingdom and each city they cover in a way that you can use them in your game. And obviously, if you want to set a chronicle there, you want to do more research. But the book gives you a good starting point. It's like when you read about it, you you may think, oh, right, what they've told me here I think that's interesting. So I want to set my chronicle there. So I want to do more research. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, I, I, a lot of useful information and and the way they kind of um, intermix canite uh, uh, yeah. information with with mortal information is really well done. Uh, and and like like you said, it gives a lot of of useful like uh, story seeds and and plot points where you can uh, set your chronicle basically. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I mean, there there are there are three complaints on my part, and one of them is editing. They have mm. a reference to a sidebar that doesn't seem to exist, and in in a few places there seems to be like a weird page break or something like that. It's not going to ruin anything. It's just, uh, you know, it's it's a bit annoying that they refer a sidebar that doesn't exist. Yeah, I would have loved to have. As well. Yeah, <laughs> I would have loved to have had more information about the Basques since they are such a distinct ethnographic group with yeah. a language that is so special so I, I think it could be interesting obviously I don't want them to do a um, world of darkness gypsies yeah. on uh, on the Basques yeah. but just you know show that these are eth uh, ethnographically very different from yeah. the rest of, of the people uh, and finally I think there's a bit too much focus in the description of the cities on churches I know the churches were plentiful and important and yeah. You know, they're building a bunch of churches, but I keep thinking, surely there must have been other important and interesting buildings so we don't constantly hear about all the uh, the churches there are in, yeah. in, in these cities. Throw, throw in some, some Roman bridges and aqueducts because there are quite a few of those around as well. They, they do yeah. mention a, a an amphitheater uh, that is actually the hangout for, for some... Uh, Cappadocians hunting for gladiator ghosts, which in in, <laughs> in and of itself is kind of cool. But but yeah, I, I agree. It's like Spain has a lot of churches. We know that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so chapter three that focuses on the Muslim-controlled areas of Iberia, and it starts out with giving us uh, a general overview of the Taifa kingdoms, which are these you know tiny tiny statelets that are scattered throughout Muslim. Uh, areas and they don't go into specifics about them because they say there are so many of them so here's an idea of how the typhus work which i think is the way to go because they would not be able to to cover all of them um and then they it takes a look at the power centers uh, places like uh, granada valencia cordoba and so on and much like the previous chapter it weaves in canine and mortal descriptions quite well uh, and also like the previous chapter i think it does a, a really good job of presenting the basics of the land and offers some ideas for games yeah i i agree um it's uh, w what i actually was quite impressed of uh, is how kind of i don't know if, if i should call it neutral or respectful but but it's uh, it, 
it's in no way demonizing the the Muslim. Uh, I don't even want to call them invaders, but but the Muslims who live here, it's conquerors. Yeah, uh, it's it's basically this is the you you have the Christian part of the or at least nominally Christian part of the Iberian Peninsula, and then you have the the Muslim or and non-Christian parts of the Iberian Peninsula, and and they're basically treated the same way. They're presented the same way with with kind of the local culture. You you have the the local cities and what's what's interesting from. Uh, about those particular cities and what's interesting for those particular cities from a canine perspective. Uh, so really well done from from the White Wolf crew uh, who, who wrote this because again this this book came out what in the early 2000s it could have been a lot worse considering the, yeah. the polit- politics of the time. You can, you can definitely tell that it came out on the heels of Veil of Night where they really got into Muslim culture and history and stuff like that. So yeah. they've taken along all of the knowledge they gained there in order to present it in an interesting way. Uh, and they also, they don't, you know, go totally in the other direction. They don't present Muslim Iberia as being in an all-tolerating golden age. Yeah. Sure, yeah. in general, there is more tolerance. You can be a, a Christian and a Jew living in Muslim lands much easier than you can be, a, a, especially a Muslim, but also a Jew living in Christian lands. But at the same time, they also present situations that did happen with the force, forced um, conversion of, of Jews and, and Christians uh, at times where that was politically uh, advantageous mm-hmm. rather than just having them as protected peoples. So it, it, it shows off that, yes, it's different, and it's different in a number of ways, but it's not like, uh, ooh, uh, Christianity is this all-stifling destructive force, whereas those who are not uh, Christians, they have this golden age going yeah, on. Yeah. Um, there can be no doubt that scholarship flourished more in, in Muslim Iberia than it did in Christian Iberia, but uh, that's not a factor of the religion so much as it is a factor of uh, a long uh, list of historical events so like you said i think they managed to present it in a very very nice neutral Mm. uh way uh and it once again you know you get ideas about oh this could be an interesting setting this could be a fun place to uh, to do a chronicle so the chapter it it accomplishes what it's supposed to do yeah it it completely Um, chapter four is about mortal and canine groups in iberia and i think this is a really great chapter giving us a look at the schism within the La Sombra power structure, yeah. story seeds involving the Canite heresies, and knightly orders both mortal and Canites. One problem I saw uh, was that it is mentioned that the members of the Canite heresy splinter group are mainly caitiff, but really at this time there shouldn't be enough caitiff to, to say that the majority of the members are caitiff. Obviously, in a place like Iberia, you might have slightly more caitiffs due to all the, the fighting going on, yeah. but still... Caitiffs are presented as so rare in the Dark Ages yeah. that, that it's a bit weird that they say, well, most of them are. Also, one thing that I really missed was they, they talk about this um, Lions of Rodrigo, which you, you mentioned before, mm-hmm. which is this Christ, uh, Canite Christian group of, theoretically, it's a knightly order, though most of the members weren't knights uh, in, yeah. in mortal times, who fight about the Muslims. And I, I sort of lack um, a Muslim... Um, equivalent 
because oh, okay. as it's been yeah. Sh- yeah as it's been shown when you when you unite into a group you you can be powerful and I think that there would be something on the Muslim side as well some firebrand gathering together a group and basically doing the same thing but you know that aside this chapter really helps uh, give an idea of the dynamics of the peninsula and it offers plenty of story hooks so it, it is thumbs up for me. Yeah, I, I really like this chapter because it has, uh, n- not only does it have one of the best kind of, of, of political solutions to it, and, and it's the La Sombra when, when they kind of, because they do have the problem in, in that, uh, roughly speaking, half the clans are Muslims and the other half are, are Christians, and they, uh, they, they are on different sides of the Reconquista. But then they kind of solve this in this extremely sneaky backhanded manner in that well let's not really care about what the mortals do because they they're gonna flow back and forth and they're gonna be dead in a hundred years anyway but what what we actually care about right is that when your city that is now muslim is being conquered by christians you still want to keep your influence and power so how do we make sure that we la sombra keep our influence yeah. over mortal cities no matter if they are christians or muslims and no matter if we are christians or muslims and it's it's like i just want to do a golf clap and like yeah okay fuck it you you you've you've beaten the game you've beaten like the, the big political game on on how to solve politics and it's like don't focus on the mortals focus on your own power uh, yeah, you sort of you, you you kind of get almost an American uh, Supreme Court vibe here with the Supreme <laughs> yeah. Court saying, "Well, well, we're not going to even contemplate this situation. We're going to let the lower courts handle yeah. it, and we're going to focus on something bigger." With yeah, exactly here where they say, "No, no, no, this whole this whole um, uh, Christian versus uh, Muslim thing that that's nothing to do with us. What's yeah. important is that the La Sombra are in power yeah, exactly. over all other clans. Yeah, exactly. um, and obviously it it creates a lot of tension, but it's also it sets up so many options for a game if you want to like uh, young Firebrand La Sombra going. No, we're going to have to f- somehow force them into picking a side and Elder La Sombra uh, face palming and going, "Oh, will you stop it?" and yeah. stuff like that. So and it it uh, it offers up a lot of possibilities. Yeah, and and also again, if you want to do a through the ages chronicle, you can kind of go like. What, so all of a sudden, why did this did this uh, nominally uh, Muslim Asombra stay around in a city that is now completely Christian and Catholic in in 18th century Spain? Well, because he made a deal that made sure that he could still keep his influence, even though the, the Reconquista has been done and over for 200 years. So it's it, it's it's a good solution that that can be useful in many. Uh, many different situations. Uh, one one small thing, and I don't know if I misinterpret it, uh, but uh, another thing that this book does, and I really like it, is that it it um, uh, references other um, books in in the Dark Ages line, uh, most often uh, Bitter Crusades and and Constantinople by Night in a few places as well, I think. But um, what, what I think, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but on page 89, you have a sidebar where they talk about the Canite heresy and uh, uh, Narcissus, the Prince of Venice. And it says that 10 years ago, he helped manipulate the Fourth Crusade towards Constantinople. 
fulfilling an ancient desire for vengeance, but putting the uh, interest of heresies a distant second behind his own. And but wasn't kind of one of the whole ideas of bitter crusades that the mortals are the one kind of dictating yeah, the flow exactly. of history and and not the vampire. <coughs> so yeah, Narciss got what he wanted in that uh, the crusade was aimed towards Constantinople, but it wasn't really him doing it. So no, he just got lucky. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, so it's, it's, it, it goes against what they said in, in um, Bitter Crusade, mm. and also it goes against one of the things that we really liked about Bitter Crusades, which was that it was the mortals, yeah. um, the, the sort of the inertia yeah. of the mortals that, that carried the vampires along in their wake rather than the vampires steering the mortals. So that was a, a good catch. I didn't, yeah. I didn't see that one yeah. myself. Yeah, well, um, good, good thing it wasn't me. Uh, but but yeah, I, I I really just have one more thing about this this chapter, and and it's again I really like how they managed to to intermingle uh, real world history with with world of darkness history, and and not only um, not only like Cainite influence on on history, but also uh, world of darkness, dark ages mortals, and how they would kind of act, uh, and and I'm thinking specifically of, of the kind of twin orders of uh, order of, of uh, uh, Santiago, the order of, of St. Jacob and um, or St. James uh, <laughs> which, and, and then you have the sword of St. James, which is basically yeah. this kind of um, secret <coughs> uh, cloak and dagger uh, hunting the, the devil kind of kind of uh, order um, and and I like the fact that they didn't just make something up it that they actually base it or, or give the opportunity for connection to the real order of, of Santiago um, because that 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 allows for a lot more like influence and and opportunity it's, it's not just oh another secret society but I'm, I'm guessing that uh, the the members of, of uh, the sword of Saint James uh, that they could probably uh, pose or perhaps even be members of the order of, of uh, Santiago uh, and kind of try to use that and try to influence the order of Santiago to also go after the Canaanites which could then be opposed by Canaanite members of the order of Santiago uh, yeah so um, and, and also as another side note and, and harking back a bit to Portugal, uh, there is a painting from the 1580s called The King's Fountain, who portrays uh, basically everyday life uh, in, uh, uh, in Lisbon, I think it is. Uh, and it, uh, it, it depicts, uh, it, yeah, it, it depicts life in, in, in Lisbon, in, in Portugal. And what's interesting about it is, is how... Uh, well, I guess the modern world would be multicultural, would be because you you have uh, Jews and you have Moors uh, and you have Christians all doing different things, uh, and it's quite distinct that you can see that there are dark-skinned people uh, basically doing the same things as as the lighter-skinned people uh, and also Jewish people uh, just hanging about uh, near the King's Fountain in in Lisbon. Um, but one of the cooler things is that. Uh, one of the main characters or kind of the center points of, of the painting 
is a, a, a Portuguese or African Portuguese member of the Order of St. James. It's a very dark skinned uh-huh. uh, gentleman uh, riding on a nice horse and he's, he, he has a sword and he has uh, the black cloak uh, with the cross of, of Santiago on it. Uh, so it's quite obvious that he, he, he's a prominent member. He also has a fancy hat. Uh, so, so again, uh, if if you're the kind of person or, or if you feel that you don't, just don't want a bunch of, of Germanic Ventru or, or blonde pagan gangrel running around in your chronicle, uh, include a few characters from the Iberian Peninsula because it was obviously for, for many reasons quite multicultural. Um, and yeah, so, so you can can have a, a a bit of variety in your uh, character gallery. Yeah, and uh, speaking of character gallery, chapter five are NPCs. Yeah. Uh, and one one note from uh, our listener Oriol is that all the non-Muslim names are either Spanish, Latin, or Visigoth, with no Aragonese or Catalan names. Yeah. And that this is generally a thing throughout the books that the names are being presented in Spanish rather than the local dialect of wherever they're from, mm. which is a bit sad given how they they gave us an example yeah. of all these different languages it could mm. it would have been nice to to have them in the local dialect yeah um <clears throat> the npcs themselves are for the most part quite well done uh most of them don't receive full stats which i think is a good thing because that allows you to make more of them and you can always make the stats that you need uh but the ones where you know you you think the characters might come into some kind of of conflict or at least contest with them most of those get full stats, so you don't have to spend time making yeah. making them up themselves. One area where I was very disappointed was Clan Bruja. There are only two NPCs here, and none of them are given full write-ups, which really disappoints me, given that the clan has been given some importance in previous chapters. Yeah. Combine this with what I think is too many La Sombra, and I would really have preferred they axed a couple of La Sombra and gave more space to Clan Bruja, because only two of them... Um, yeah, also if, speaking of if clan nothing else, oh, just sorry. to have them as a foil to the La Sombra, so it's it's yeah. not just this this steamrolling La Sombra army, basically. Yeah, and speaking of Clan La Sombra, there are two characters that I want to mention. One is uh, Sylvester de Ruiz, who is sort of the head La Sombra in Iberia. He's the, the guy who more or less claims Iberia for Clan La Sombra. Uh, he's not yet 500 years old as a vampire, yet all his physical stats are above five, as is his charisma manipulation and wits. In fact, his lowest attribute is appearance four. That's yeah. his lowest. Yeah. And he also has a combined 37 discipline dots with dominate and obtenebration as seven. Uh, this man is way too overpowered for his age. It feels like he's sort of a throwback to when the character creation was, all right, well, this guy's sixth generation, so let's just throw a bunch yeah. of, of seven dots yeah. uh, at him and... and you know, he he has to fulfill the role of being all-powerful, so it doesn't matter if he'd had the time to become this powerful, we're just going to make him, which is a bit sad. Uh, the second La Sombra is Archbishop Moncada, who, at this point, he's been a vampire for 60 years, yeah. yet he's described as being extremely powerful and influential and considered a great and direct threat by the Canite heresy. It seems a bit excessive considering how short a time he's been a vampire. Mm. No matter how powerful and skilled he was in real life, I mean, sure, you can take some of that with you, but when you're going up against vampires who are hundreds of years old, then it's 60 years just isn't enough time to get yourself in the, the kind of position where people are saying, oh my God, we really have to watch out for this guy and he's really dangerous. It would probably be more like, 
in a hundred years from now, this guy is going to be a big deal. Yeah, uh, and I don't really mind if they have this kind of prodigal, uh, super child, uh, or, or this kind of, I wouldn't say overpowered character, but, but it... Like sometimes it, it can be cool that holy shit this is a guy who ro- who rose to power in just five <coughs> years, but at the same time you have people like the Ruiz who who are just so much more powerful than than Moncada, which doesn't really make any sense that that Moncada would be able to outmaneuver Ruiz, uh, and especially since you have another Wonder Child uh, in the form of of Lucita of Aragon who. Is, who was embraced in 1190 so she's what 22 years of, of vampire yep. age so so if if you just had one of them that you, you had like the one prodigy in Moncada and that holy shit this is a this guy managed something like he's unique he's like the yeah. Mozart of, of La Sombra politics fine but then when you also have Lucita who is 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 Moncada's uh, child, and and she's kind of doing the same thing in less time. It's like, why even bother? Like it's 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 just power creep. Yeah, exactly. One last um, vampire that I want to mention is one of the Nosferatu. I've forgotten his name, but just um, the the thing I like about him is he was um, a stonemason. He was um. He was a slave before mm. he was embraced, and then he be he became free because he was just such a skilled stonemason. Yeah. Uh, and then he, when he was embraced, he was already very strong, and his muscles just kept swelling yeah. up. So he became this walking mass of muscle. And the way that his picture is like his his head is down at level with his shoulders because his shoulders have just become so muscled. Yeah. And I think this is a really cool way to have a Nosferatu where, yeah, I mean, he's quite clearly inhuman because yeah. no human, no matter how many steroids you, you take, are going to be looking like that. And it's not like he has an ugly face or anything. It's no, just but he's, he's quite he's clearly... He's in, not necessarily yeah, he's, ugly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so those are the NPCs that I wanted to sort of, of point out. I don't know if there were any that really jumped out at you. No, I thought his his name is uh, Hamad al Badakhosi, so he's from Badakhos. Yeah. Uh, but ah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, again as you mentioned, it's it's a really cool take on the Nosferatu uh, clan curse. In in that it's like, oh no, he's he has warts and his skin is falling off. That no, he's he's a, a grotesque. He's he's inhuman. Uh, and it's I don't know I kind of get a bit like Quasimodo uh, vibes to yeah. him in in that again he's he's not necessarily ugly but is is just so completely alien so that's that's why he he just that that justifies uh, his his appearance of zero is is that just he 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 he's a monster basically. Um, but but yeah, it's it that was a cool take. Uh, there is also just just as a kind of of, of fun thing in that um, with with the very first uh, Asamite character, uh, and I'm just gonna scroll up so I can uh, yeah Nasira, the sorceress of Grenada. Um, you you know how basically all of the monasteries uh, are filled with with vampires. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so you have the Christian vampires occupying all of the monasteries, and then you have Nasira. Uh, her haven is in a mosque, and, <laughs> and it's kind of like, yeah, of course, because the the, the Muslim uh, vampires wouldn't hide in monasteries; they would hide in mosques. That makes perfect exactly. sense. Exactly. Uh, but but yeah, again, I I, uh, I mentioned the character portraits of um, uh, of uh, uh, the characters that that they actually are quite expressionful and and they show. Um, they, they show actual people and not just stereotypes. Uh, I, I do like uh, Shabako the Nubian. Uh, the, I was just about to mention yeah, him. The, that the picture gangrel, is awesome. Yeah, and, and the whole idea of him is that he's he's a gangrel Methuselah who's he was embraced in 1290 BC, so it's 2,500 years ago, basically. And, and he's he's been around for long enough not to have to care about things. Uh, but then he kind of felt that yeah, Islam seems like a cool thing. I'm gonna try it out, and and he's he's not being portrayed as a kind of like yeah, I'm I'm really old. I'm gonna force everyone to, um, uh, I'm I'm gonna force everyone to to become Muslim just as me. But he at some points he says that uh, yeah, basically everyone has to face God on their own terms. And, and he actively doesn't want to take too much part in, um, in in the kind of struggle and reconquest and everything. And it's like, yeah, that's that's a really cool character. I can I can kind of get behind his his whole shtick and his idea. Uh, and and again, the fact that he's he's a gangrel Muslim, but he's portrayed as just as a monster, is is really nice. I think. Yeah. We end with chapter six, giving us storytelling advice and ideas on Iberian Chronicles. Uh, like most uh, books, when they when they give this uh, storytelling advice, uh, it's it's pretty good. And I especially like them mentioning how to uh, avoid religious problems in game affecting out of game, because this is obviously a setting where you really have Christian versus Muslims. So yeah. they they give you some advice on how to avoid this becoming. Uh, um, a real life problem. Yeah. Uh, they also have some good advice on how to handle characters that are Jews, since they are sort of caught between two ver- warring fractions, mm. and they were obviously the source of much animosity. So, yeah. how do you deal with that without it once again turning into uh, anti-Semitism? So, in general, I think this is a good chapter. Yeah, uh, I I agree, and 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 the fact that they they have this they they have another sidebar about using Kabbalah. Would you like to? Uh, and 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 just so many. It's it's one of the shortest chapters in the book, actually. But but they still have uh, they they still have a lot of of good advice on on how to deal with everything from from arrogant young Canaanites to if you want to have a blood vengeance to. Um, again setting different themes and moods and and kind of like well what what are you going to do um if if you want to run um if if you want to run a story but you don't want to focus uh, as much on the religious parts of of the thing uh, so yeah that's it's it's a really nice uh, really nice and and useful chapter because you can use a lot of these idea for 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 other um settings as well of course yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, time to judge this book. As a gaming book, I liked it. I think it does a good job of presenting an interesting setting with m- uh, many options for various types of games. I mean, if you want an excuse to do an action-filled, combat-focused 
Dark Ages game, then this really is the setting for it. Yeah. If you want high politics, this is the setting for it. If you want, you know, interpersonal relations and you want your players uh, and their characters to have thoughts about religion and stuff like that, you can do that here. Uh, so all in all, this is a place I could definitely see myself setting a game. Uh, like I said, I would have preferred they focus a little less on Clan La Sombra and a little mm. more on other clans, but yeah. other than that, you know, I think it's a good setting book. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It it opens up for for a lot of, like you mentioned, a lot of different types of games. Uh, since since you have, uh, since you do have the kind of religious uh, aspect with with. Um, uh, we, there, there are a lot of talk. We haven't really mentioned it, but but they mentioned different kind of of uh, uh, books and and scriptures that are holy for the different kind or the different sects. Uh, so you have what is it? The, the book of of secret book of blood or something that that the is book of shining blood or something yeah, like for, that for the Canaanite heresy. So so you could even if you want to, especially with the amount of of ancient cities and Roman ruins and stuff. You, you could do like a, a, an Indiana Jones kind of game as well with uh, with, with the characters having to find uh, going on a treasure hunt and finding um, artifacts or, or relics or uh, or whatever as well uh, but but yeah I, I agree with most of the thing or with all of the things you said and and I would just like to add on that it, it could use a bit more editing. Uh, like you mentioned, there yes. seems to be a missing sidebar and, and there are some things that are being repeated. Um, another small thing that I really like is that um, we actually do in, in the um, chapter, the very last character in the, uh, uh, in the chapter of characters is an old friend from Bitter Crusades, uh, yeah. Rodrigo, Rodrigo de Navarre. Uh, and what I really like about him, speaking of, of kind of power levels, is that uh, he's now older, so his stamina has gone down from two to one, uh, which is I, I, I kind of think that's yeah, it's it's not like he's become this holy avenger and and he's suddenly gotten superpower just because he he figured out that there are vampires around. No, he's he's actually become weaker because he's a mortal man and he's now in his fifties. Yeah. Like, god damn, that's that's really cool. <laughs> um, so yeah, there like. A lot of things that you really could do, and I, I mentioned the, the weird um, civil war chronicle with with Fey and 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 Gangrel and everything. So, uh, yeah, really cool one. Uh, but to yeah. make sure, or, or as an advice, check up so that you get actually uh, Catalonian or Aragonese names instead of the the boring old same uh, Latin and and modern Spanish ones. I, I think exactly. that will add some things uh, to it. Yeah. So historically speaking, it is obviously superficial, though as mentioned, it's kind of hard, uh, kind of had to be given the breadth of the territory mm -hmm. and time it had to cover. It's unfortunate the mistake that uh, our listener Oriol pointed out, um, and you know he also said that there were a few more that he didn't uh, get into. Yeah. So it seems that if you really want historical accuracy, you need to to do some research on your own. Uh, but what's your final verdict, historically speaking? I mean, you know more about Spain than I do. Yeah, well, we we basically covered it, and and like, my my main gripe is that they keep talking about, or or they at least mention Spain and Spanish rather than like, yeah. Do do they mean Spain as the whole of the area that is now Spain? Do they mean Spanish as as the Castilian, which is basically the what is now modern Spanish? 
or do they mean something else? It's it's just annoying. And as you mentioned previously, yeah. in that we they basically already given us all of everything that we need with the different different languages and the different uh, peoples living in the area. And then they just kind of dump it all out and and revert back to to uh, the the uh, kind of shorthand Spanish and and Spain. But but yeah, yeah. overall there it's enough in it anyways that you could probably have a lot of fun in it. I know I would have a lot of fun in it if I played a game yeah. in this area. So before we sign off, I really want to uh, thank uh, Oriol Espinosa for contacting us and giving us his input on this. Obviously, you know. Uh, we are limited in how much we know and how yeah. much research we can do. So basically, if uh, one of our listeners uh, happens to be knowledgeable about an area that we're about to cover, we're m- quite happy to receive input from you. So if you happen to be a bit of an expert in an area that uh, touches on an upcoming book, don't hesitate to contact us. Uh, if nothing else, it means that uh, we have to do less research <laughs> ourselves. Uh, so that's that's always cool with us. Yeah, and and also um, uh, if if anyone has noticed anything that we have gotten wrong in any of our episodes, uh, please contact us as well because that's just an opportunity to learn uh, and, exactly, and improve I mean, the show for you, our listeners. We we're we're not uh, in any way the final authority, and like Peter said, uh, we like learning as well. And obviously, since one of our focuses is on historical accuracy, if we've made something, if we've done something wrong, we would welcome any chance to correct it. Um, the next book we're looking at is Ashen Clans, the last of the Ashen books uh, complementing uh, Ashen Knight and Ashen Thief. So, Peter, do you have any last comments before we sign off? Nope. I just want to thank all our listeners and our patrons and everyone else who gives us input and and listens to our show. Excellent. And so it is goodbye from me, Jacob. Y hasta luego. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be doing this in English. Farewell and see you next time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, goodbye from me as well. Cheers.